Nation, Rob McGregor, welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the mystical underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Trish McGregor and Rob McGregor and our producer and tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. Trish's latest novel is White Crows, which will be out in 2022. And Rob's latest novel is Tulpas. Our upcoming nonfiction book is called The Shift, Reports from the Mystical Underground. Okay, our guest today is uh, Greg Lavoie. Greg is the author of Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life, and also Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. He is a former journalism professor and has worked at USA Today, among other publications as a journalist, and he is a regular blogger at uh, Psychology Today. He is also a lecturer and seminar leader in the business, educational, governmental, faith-based, and human potential areas, arenas, and has keynoted and uh, presented workshops for numerous organizations. Welcome, Greg. Hey. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Yeah. So before I read your book, my definition of a calling was something that you were meant to do um, or, or to be uh, a destiny, a, a sense of knowing in, in spite of any obstacles. You talk about a calling not only as a knowing, but a remembering. Uh, can you talk about your definition and how it's uh, remembering? Uh, it's about remembering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so my most elemental definition of a calling really starts by pluralizing it. Uh, so it's callings, so that people aren't quite so focused on the singular calling, you know, the the destiny with a capital D, the, mm -hmm. the vocational burning bush. Um, but they're, they're focused on the smaller calls that are kind of all around them and and weave throughout any given day. So so there, so my definition of calls is really the signs, the signals the urgings, the promptings that we get throughout the day, sometimes, of course, even the imperatives that we get, but they come from deep inside our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and they tell us what it's going to take, what, what kinds of responses to these signs and signals it's going to take to make our lives sort of literally come true. And I mean that in the sense of staying in alignment with our deepest sense of authenticity and and integrity, but not not in a moral sense. I mean integrity in a psychological sense. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, being in integrity with ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes the work of discerning these calls isn't just uh, a process of discovery, which it is, of course, but it's a process sometimes of remembering what we already know. Mm. Okay. Uh, or maybe <clears throat> knew once and then forgot. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and yeah, so, you know, sometimes it's as simple as the question that we often ask children, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. Cause there's a lot of adults that if you would ask them that at seven years old, what they would have told you is what they actually turned out to be when they were grownups. Mm -hmm. So some of us have known it all along mm -hmm. and maybe some of it, the remembering is also like you came out of college you came to a crossroads where you had to decide one of a couple of different directions to take your life. A lot of people, for instance, choose security over passion. Mm -hmm. yeah. But come, come midlife or, or somewhere maybe around there, that other thing that they left behind wants airtime. <laughs> yeah, I would guess that uh, 
you know, children, especially boys, a lot of them would say they want to be a fireman when they're, you know, like three or four. <laughs> or an athlete or and, uh, probably, astronaut. Uh, not, astronaut, yeah, right. Not too many of them, you know, really follow up on that initial uh, thought about uh, what they want to be. Also, you're, when you talk about callings and signs and symbols, that's you're talking about synchronicity too, right? Definitely one of the signs. Uh-huh. Um, there's right. a whole slew of them. Uh, anything from, you know, dreams to the section of the bookstore you always walk into first when right. you bookstore uh, to things like synchronicities and visions and voices. And there's all kinds of forms that calls come in. Hmm. Well, OK, you say earlier in your book um, that we can't help but approach the prospect of following our deepest callings with both exhilaration and terror. Can you explain that? <laughs> uh, and yeah. succinctly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, succinctly. Um, so callings are exciting because, and this is just my feeling about them, because uh-huh. their agenda is growth. Their, they, their agenda is integrity, it's discovery, it's learning. Um, and yet at the same time, those things require that we kind of loosen the grip on the status quo Mm -hmm. um and that's where some of the anxiety comes in is uh one of the questions that's implied in callings is what are you willing to do to follow it and that can bring people right to the edge of their comfort zone yeah that's (laughs) Um, true um so the call may be to change jobs or leave a career behind or retire or get married or start a business or you know god knows look inside yourself um and those are acquired tastes you know um so their calls are exciting because uh getting them at all is exciting a lot of people go through their lives and show up in workshops like mine and say i I have no idea what my calling is. Huh. Hmm. Um, and so turning on those receivers and being willing to hear your marching orders can be very unnerving for some people, especially people who are really soldered to the status quo. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah for, for Trish and I, um, when we met, uh, we were ready to follow our callings. <laughs> uh, she was working as Florida at Florida International University teaching English as a second language to Cuban refugees. I was working as a journalist for a daily newspaper in South Florida. And, Whose boss was a tyrant. Yeah, and that, that's what, uh, I had a little tyrant for a boss and that's what made it so easy for me to, you know, give, give it up, give up journalism and go off as a freelancer Right. It, but it takes, it takes sacrifice though. You got to give up things and people think you're crazy too. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. But would you say your experience of leaving that job, for instance, had a bit of both exhilaration and fear involved? Yeah. 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 Sure. And also on. absolute terror, because if you fail, <laughs> there's no paycheck. <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, right. We, des- we decided to yeah. uh, our first book, we decided to write a book on synchronicity. But we didn't know enough and didn't <laughs> have enough experience about synchronicity. We wrote something and it never went anywhere. And I said, and I was thinking as we wrote this, well, if this doesn't work, that's it, you know, go back to the job. Well, by the, by the time we finished that book, we were well into this world of freelancing and there was no going back, even oh, though we didn't sell it. <laughs> right. So there's really you just have to go forward. You know, that reminds me, I think it was something I included in the Callings book. Um, it was a story about one of the Spanish explorers that came over in, I don't know, 14, 1500s. I can't remember his name. It seems like it might have been Coronado. And his first order of business on reaching the new land was to burn his ships <laughs> so that his men couldn't go back to Spain. They wow. Go forward. How's that for commitment? And yeah. You know, I did something similar. I didn't burn a ship. But when my first novel sold, I let my teaching uh, certificate lapse. I thought, that's it. That door's shut. <laughs> um, interesting. So you had to go forward. Yeah. Exactly. I couldn't, you know, I didn't want it there to fall back on. Yeah. And ultimately, Trish and I got back to the synchronicity book and uh, ended up uh, writing actually three of them. Five of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's another thing, too, is that this notion that a calling and I hear this a lot in my line of work. uh, My calling needs to pay the bills. 
mm, yeah. um, stop, stops a lot of people from responding to them at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but this is not what callings were ever designed to do. The, the mm -hmm. point of calling is respond and ideally in the affirmative, but they were never meant to shoulder the burden of paying the mortgage. And mm -hmm. we, we've added that on late in the game, but really the point is get it in your life to some degree sooner than later. Uh -huh. um, say yes to it. And um, I really think that's the point. And it's hard to it's hard to get away from the money piece and I'm, I'm very practically minded. So I know that that's important, but it's, yeah. it's a lot of people in their tracks. When we set off, uh, you know, we, we tend to tell people who want to go the freelance life to, you know, hang on to your day job. But when, uh, but we didn't do that. Uh, we just, <laughs> we just quit our jobs and we had $5,000 and mm -hmm. we started, started working for, uh, you know, writing magazine articles and, you know, putting out a query every day. And, yep. uh, you know, we would get, uh, We'd get assignments, uh, but the money was low and the money was slow, and it was it was challenging. Absolutely, yeah. I did something sort of in between. I I prepped for uh, almost two years to enter the freelance life while I still kept my day job. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And I just I really was committed to making it the call work, and I knew it was a really big change. And I was told by a mentor or two, this is a really big change, not not just to move from employment to self-employment, uh, mm -hmm. but to be an artist or a writer in this culture. Yeah. The thing is, you know, once you once you commit to it, then then it kind of it, it becomes it, everything starts opening up. Yeah. Mm. That's what I've found. But for Trish and I, we went through that five thousand uh, dollars four months pretty quickly. Yeah, about four months, uh, you know, living uh, in a, a kind of a minimal existence. And then uh, Trish got a job teaching uh, night school English as a second language, and I got a, a newspaper job on a weekly paper. It was supposed to be full time, but I was able to do it in about twenty hours a week and continued uh, freelancing at the same time. And uh, yeah, that, that lasted a then year. Then my my novel sold. Yeah, Trish sold. Trish sold her first novel after a year, and I got a, a project, a nonfiction project, uh, and uh, we were we quit our jobs and been, been out of the a regular army ever since. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's a beautiful example because what that says to me is callings are, after all, negotiable. Hmm. You know uh, how you manage it. Um, it's not a failure that you got a part time part time jobs. Yeah. To to sustain your passion for this subject, uh, mm -hmm. it just means you negotiate with it, um, mm -hmm. and right. they are—they are eminently negotiable. This is not like a divine subpoena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a divine subpoena. <laughs> what a great <laughs> phrase! You—you yeah. you, you have a voice. You have a vote. You get to—you know—it was a profile of a guy that I put in the book of. He was a. Uh, uh, an executive at a coffee company and had a calling to be a painter, which he did uh -huh. on the side for 25 years mm -hmm. while he kept his regular job. And then when he was ready to retire, by the time that came around, he had been a painter for 25 years, had developed contacts and a portfolio and uh -huh. um, right. confidence. And so then he was able to switch over more or less full time to it. Yeah. What, um, Greg, what happens to somebody who rejects a calling? How, how does that impact your life? <laughs> um, and I know that's a loaded question. <laughs> oh, it's a great question. Um, so my sense is that y y you can't refuse a calling with impunity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they will keep coming back. That's the beauty and the curse of them is the search party isn't going to retire. Um, and the callings will continue to keep coming back and coming back. So there'll be one thing you might start setting up is this feeling of being on the run from your own mm -hmm. self, Jeez. from your own deepest yeah. or highest self, because it those calls do not stop. And frankly, I think they will try to pop through until the last possible moment of consciousness. Huh. And um, so that's a dynamic you can set up as a feeling of being kind of on the lamb from your own soul. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I have this sense that the human psyche, my, my own, of course, included is, is sort of like the earth. It's a closed system in the sense that there's, there's no away as in running away. There's no, uh -huh. there's no out as in throwing the garbage out. 
<laughs> you know, the, there's no trash icon in here. And whatever we push down or push away, suppress, repress, um, is going to come up someplace else in the system. It's going to come through dreams. It's going to come right. through body symptoms. Right. It's going to um, try to pull us. It could come through with illness, couldn't it? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've got a whole chapter in the callings book called The Language of the Body because the body is one of the channels through which callings try to make their way into consciousness. Mm. And um, so, um, you know, there's this thing called systems theory. You surely run across this. And this just means everything's hitched to everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you move one um, one part of a system and it's going to affect other parts of the system. I, I think the human psyche is the same way, is if if you push something down, it's going to find another way in the system to come up uh-huh. into consciousness. True. And uh, in fact, the best description I've ever run across of systems theory does not actually come from a scientist. It comes from a, a Mexican poet by the name of Jose Frias. Mm-hmm. And uh, the phrase he has is, I tried to drown my sorrows with drink, but the damn things learned how to swim. <laughs> that's good. That's great. And I think that's what that's sort of a good answer to your question of what happens to calling. And can I can I interject yeah, yeah, real quick because yeah I I have an acquaintance that well and Trish was asking how does it affect your life but with with this particular person uh, the job they were working they were miserable. And their partner said, so he, him and his partner sat down, had a discussion, and he's like, well, and kind of like y'all were talking, this was kind of like a third version of uh, Trish and Rob's description and Greg's description of how to pursue the calling. Uh, but because he, w- he proposed, well, let's save up for a couple of years and then maybe I can take a swing. He was, wa- he was wanting to be a professional musician. He was in a computer uh, in a, in a IT job and, yeah. and, uh, and, she, and his, and, and his partner told him, you know what, uh, we're good. I've got a job. You take a year off and mm-hmm. make that your job is to pursue huh. this goal and, or pursue this calling. And, uh, and it didn't work out exactly like he thought it would, but he ended up with a job writing music for video games, which, oh, uh, that's cool. So, right? But but it was that commitment that she that she made to him. Take a year, and that's your job. Because yeah. I want you to be happy. Because if you're miserable, it impacts me. <laughs> so, really, yeah. you know that's a really good point, John. Because I have this really strong sense that callings are community property. Hmm. You know, yes, you alone are called, uh, but that doesn't mean you've got to do it all by yourself. And, um, you know, when one person has a really strong calling and can't pursue it or quits a job to pursue it, that's going to affect partnership. You know, if you belong to a men's group and you decide to move out of Alabama and and go to um, Michigan, that's going to affect your men's group. You own Mm -hmm. a company, you decide to sell it, that's going to affect your employees. So I think it's this is a, a wonderful example of how callings are community property. They do affect all the people in your your circles. Right. Um, yeah. So you know, when Trish and I uh, did it, uh, we, uh, you know, it, I think I, I kind of thought, well, maybe one of us should keep a job, uh, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't going to work out. I mean, I suggested maybe you should keep a job. She said, no, maybe <laughs> neither one of us are going to keep a job. Uh, <laughs> we'll both uh-huh. work part-time. <laughs> Uh-huh, yeah. So that's how it worked out. So, Greg, what uh, uh, I'm interested in, I'm wondering how you how you came up with this idea for the the book. Uh, you know, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's something that I never, it never occurred to me that a book on callings, I've never seen one. Uh, no, me either. One. Uh, are there other books and uh, what motivated you? Yeah. Um, yeah, there are certainly other books on the subject of following passion and purpose and, yeah. and calling. Yeah. Um, I think what got me involved. Uh, well, I ran across years ago a writer I'd never heard of, uh, an Italian fellow named Alberto Moravia. And uh, I read one of his books. And in the book, he said he thought it was important in life to pursue 
uh, what he called the one problem you were born to understand. Oh, interesting. And I was struck by that question. And um, I think this was one of mine as far back as I can remember, literally till my teen years, is how do you how do you create a life that actually belongs to you and mm -hmm. isn't a knockoff or isn't a hand me down? And I say I use that particular phrase because I come from a family that has a family business that stretched uh -huh. back multiple generations. Oh, okay. um, a hundred years before I even got to the table, it was <laughs> and, and all the men and all the males in my family went into that business. Mm. That's what I mean by a hand-me-down life. My, the, right. You know, it's like the table was already set for me before I even got here, but yeah. I didn't want mm. to eat at that table. Mm -hmm. And um, so the the one problem you I was born to understand, I think one of them is how do you create a life that really is yours yeah. that has some real passion and power and a sense of purpose to it? And so the book kind of grew out of that fascination. And also just the rubber meets the road process of following my own callings, like when mm -hmm. it came time to, for us to decide whether to go into dad's business and granddad's and great granddad's business. <laughs> all three of us, there were three boys in the family, all of us rejected it. Oh, and two things happened as a result of that. It was sold out of the family when my dad retired, uh -huh. and all three of us were cut out of his will. <laughs> oh, <geez>. oh my <laughs> God! Which highlighted a little mad, huh? Yeah, well, much earlier in the game than I I would have chosen. It highlighted for me uh, this notion of sacrifice: what you That's have to be willing to give up in order to follow a call and be true to your own self. Yeah, wow. hmm. and sacrifice. You know, yeah. You mentioned that uh, how callings will sometimes keep press coming up, coming up, even to your last moments of life. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, OK, if you carry that into death, then is this calling carried into the next life? Uh, um, I would say that, of course, I suppose, depends on your belief system. Right. Um, if you're somebody who believes in multiple lives, past lives and future lives, um, I don't know how these things work myself, <laughs> um, but I, I can imagine that it would pursue. I mean, if it's a passion, if, if part right? of the purpose of multiple lives is to work out karma or mm -hmm. work out things you haven't worked out the last go round, I would imagine there'd be some way in which callings would pursue you even through those veils. Mm -hmm. um, but I say this with great humility because I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, none of us do. <laughs> Not really. Um, yeah. Um, but I know that they're incredibly persistent in this lifetime. And how, how does creativity play into a person's uh, calling? Are, are we all uh, creative beings looking for a calling? Or waiting to be called? <laughs> yeah, let's see. Um, creativity. Well, uh, I certainly think we, we need to apply creativity to our response to a calling. Mm -hmm. Like the mm -hmm. way you did in, in, in how to figure out how to stay true to this call of yours, you had to figure out um, ways to make it work. Yeah. So you, I think there's certainly the call to apply creativity to how you respond. But mm -hmm. I also, in another entirely different sense, uh, I think it's important to, re it's been important to me to realize that I am actually as opposed to this notion that there are some people who are creative and some people who are not. I think like, everybody is to some yeah, extent. Like, are there really either people who were born just to fulfill the quotas of creative types? I don't think so. I think we're all creative, but in a deeper sense, we are part of the creation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important thing to remember about, you know, especially for those who think they're not the creative types. Is, um, yeah. We are part of the creation. Uh, and so, by definition, we are creative types. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. <clears throat> so, in uh, your experience talking with people about callings over the years, uh, what's the strangest calling somebody has ever <laughs> come up with? <laughs> the strangest calling? Wow. <laughs> Have they told you? <laughs> I didn't leave, I didn't send you that question. But <laughs> Wow, strange call. Um, well, Here's your next book. <laughs> how strange this is, but I um, I had an interaction once. I went to a conference center in Massachusetts, and 
it was a weekend callings workshop. And while I'm unpacking my car, uh, this guy pulls into the parking lot and uh, parks his car and gets out and motions me over and says that he had taken one of my workshops at some other place a year or two or three before. And now he wanted to share with me the calling that had emerged for him as a result of the first workshop. And the way he introduced it to me was he said, so I'm going to start this car up and I want you to bend down and smell the exhaust, (laughs) (laughs) which is one of the stranger requests, (laughs) invitations I've ever had. But I did. I bent down and I smelled the exhaust and it smelled exactly like, um, like like a fast food joint. Like you walk into, there's a certain kind of, um, I don't know, burning oil smell or something. And he said that um, he had just invented a process that was capable of turning used French fry oil into non-polluting fuel for automobiles. Jeez. In fact, he called it McFuel. I might have read about that guy. Yeah. (laughs) I read something about that. Yeah take off on a one-year pilgrimage driving that car around the country to drum up me- media attention for this event. Huh. And uh, I just thought that was incredibly fabulous. It just reminded me how amazing people are when they really tap into their their own particular genius. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Bizarre, but... <laughs> so, yeah. Hmm. When I mentioned creativity, I guess I was actually talking about passion. You know, I mean, that's really the, the key, a key factor in uh, uh, fo- following, a co- uh, following a calling, isn't it? Having that passion to pursue it. Yeah. Take the chance. Yeah. Although for some people, they may get callings and feel like, what does this have to do with me? Oh, um, boy. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I've known people who told me these stories. It seemed like it came out of the wild blue. Like it wasn't anything that they were doing or thinking of doing, but it wouldn't go away. It kept coming mm-hmm. back. And it was in a, some arena where they felt like they were untested and aren't calling supposed to be about our gifts. And mm-hmm. doesn't always work out that way. It's often that way. But sometimes um, you only come to the passion for it when you follow, begin to follow the call. And uh-huh. it's, you see what's in it for you. Greg, you said um, you teach workshops, right? So how do you teach this? I mean, what? Yeah. Do you ask um, people questions? Do I mean? Yeah, I do the same thing in my teaching around this subject as I did when I was a journalist. I mean, I it's the same skill set. I ask a lot of nosy questions. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, so I'm not telling people. I actually have people ask me that from time to time. What do you think my calling is? <laughs> really? I have no idea. But <laughs> but I ask, you know, as it were, 20 questions in the course of a, an afternoon workshop uh-huh. so that I'm um, encouraging people to come up with the information themselves, because I think right. that people already know what they need to know. It's a matter of it's kind of like therapy in the sense that you need somebody to help you pinpoint it, mm-hmm. that you already have the wisdom you need. You already uh, have the self-knowledge, but it's, a ma- it's about having a witness who can help you access it. And I think of my, my callings workshops the same way. And so I'm asking people a ton of questions um, that, that get at these signs and these signals, and then they just right. connect the dots. Yeah. Huh. Well, what do you say to people who respond to uh, saying that uh, callings are for well-off people? I need to. I need a regular paycheck. I have bills to pay. I want security. I want a pension. And blah blah blah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How do you respond? Yeah. To that? Um, yeah, that's absolutely valid. Um, I think one of the intellectual challenges for me in this work has been acknowledging that to some degree, following a calling is a luxury. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, Abraham Maslow is the guy who gave us the the hierarchy of needs pyramid. Right. Right. So at the bottom, food, clothing and shelter. And above that, belonging to a tribe, et cetera, et cetera. At the top is what he called Mm self-actualization. And I think to some degree, callings fall into that category. Um, You know, but nonetheless, I think everyone gets callings. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and no matter where in the world I've traveled, I, I hear this. Everyone mm-hmm. gets them. Access is the thing. Education is the thing. Uh, do they have role models? Do they have right. teachers? 
mentors and, um, you know, and bottom line, do they have a little food in their stomach first? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, well, um, do, do you find that it changes from culture to culture? I would imagine it would. Well, yes, I do. Um, and one of the things that makes me say that is I was teaching at uh, University of Minnesota. Uh, this is just a, a callings workshop they brought me in to do. And a young woman came up to me afterwards and said, um, I really like your workshop. I think it's a little culturally biased because <laughs> I, I, I was born in the Phil and raised in the Philippines. And we're a collectivist culture. America is an individualistic culture. Hmm. Where, um, in my culture, decisions about things like callings have to be made with an entire family and sometimes an entire village in mind. God. Wow. <clears throat> How's that for complicating it? Yeah, boy. Um, so, so I think uh, there are individualistic and, and collectivist cultures where these questions are, mm -hmm. you know, you have to have at them in a different way. Yeah. Oh, I'm often amazed when people break through with a, a novel uh, and they're from a third world country because that kind of calling is a challenge. I mean, I guess uh, you m may have to be from the upper class. I don't know how they would do it, you know? I mean, I wonder how many people are, you know, just uh, uh, from middle class or less in a third world country and are able to follow a calling like that. Uh, well, either way, they're gonna write. Yeah. So. Yeah. True. Right, exactly. You know, and uh, one thing I know goes from across every culture from what I've seen is the process that people go through in trying to listen for callings and trying to respond to them, clarify them and respond to them seems to be really similar across the board. Uh -huh. And like phase one of responding to a calling, and I'm borrowing this from Joseph Campbell, <laughs> You know, the mythologist that gave us the heroes. Right. Good guy to borrow from. <laughs> yeah. And um, and and the guy that we got the bumper sticker that says, follow your bliss. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Remember that? So he said phase one of responding to a calling is running from it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I love that because it's true and because it's um, it helps us have some compassion for ourselves because it's often my response, and, and I hear this a lot, in, again, in this line of work, that um, when people first get them, especially the bigger calls, uh, not just like, which book should I pick up on the shelf, right. which technically is a little calling, but the big ones, like, should I write a, a novel, <laughs> or right. should I um, leave my, my marriage, or should I quit my job, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's natural and normal to resist. And it's and resistance doesn't mean you're a coward. It it doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It means you're human, and it's part of the path. It's not opposed to the path. Um, I remember, I can't remember if I wrote about this in the book, but I remember this movie called The Right Stuff, oh, yeah. uh, which is about the Mercury astronaut program. <laughs> and um, there was this this scene in it that is so pertinent to this um, topic about resistance. It was uh, the pilot Chuck Yeager is trying to break the sound barrier for the first time in history. And just as his jet reaches um, Mach 1, which is uh, roughly 750 miles an hour, the, the jet starts to shake and shudder violently and threaten to really bust apart in midair going at 750 miles an hour. And then at Mach 1, he breaks through the sound barrier for the first time in history. They hear a boom down on Earth. And then the jet, he says, goes into a perfectly smooth ride. Wow. In the book, in the book, he writes, uh, my grandmother could have <clears throat> tea on board. <laughs> I love this image. I latched onto that when I was researching the Callings book because it seems to me that in any attempt at a breakthrough, Right. Whether it's physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, any attempt at a breakthrough, there's going to be a Mach 1 experience. Uh -huh. And true. it's not, there's going to be shaking and shuddering. And it isn't opposed to the journey. It's part of the journey. Uh -huh. um, and I just think that's really important to um, remember. In, in fact, when I quit my job following my calling to be a freelance writer, um, I slapped a map up on the wall in my new office and it was one of these old maps. We've all seen them at the edges, like you know, a map from the 1500s. 
Mm-hmm. And um, at the edges of the these maps, the cartographers used to draw monsters. <laughs> and, and drag on the border. Yeah, exactly. Right <laughs> on the comfort zone um, is there, there'd be dragons. Mm-hmm. And I put that map up there to remind me that I wasn't a coward for being afraid of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And Lord knows, becoming a freelance writer is the unknown. It's for sure. That's true. Only 10% 10 of anybody in this country becomes self-employed. There's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what's interesting? You're talking about Joseph Campbell, and he says, first you run. That and and he also put together the 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 great points about storytelling. And you know, first you run, that's the point where the hero denies the quest. Exactly. You know, it's like, oh no, I can't do this. My life will explode or, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's wonderful for people to read that so that they understand what's kind of happening to them as they um, respond to a calling. Um, That it's natural, for instance, to run from it. Um, But once you begin, and here's the other side of the story, once you begin to say yes to your own life, um, rather than no, of course, and rather than maybe, See, maybe is a lot of people's responses to a call. Right. This this infernal indecision can steal decades out of your life. Yeah. Um, but once you say yes, then you kind of create something like a um, gravitational field, mm-hmm. and it draws things to you. And Campbell talked about that. Yeah, hidden he did. Hands, right? The hidden hands reach out. You mm. people, for one thing you generate interest because people seem to naturally be interested in passion mm-hmm. and um, callings often lead people toward passion and that draws interest. It draws resources mm-hmm. and contacts and uh, instructional dreams. It draws that out of the psyche. It draws synchronicities. It also draws precognition. Oh, say more. Well, we had, we were written a book called sensing the future mm-hmm. and we had a number of stories in there about people who had dreamed about their future and maybe then woke up thinking, how could that be my future? And yet that became the future because that's what they worked towards. You know, it's like when you, it's like what you're talking about where you get a sense, okay, you get, you feel the calling mm-hmm. and then the passion comes and then real life sets in and you think, oh my God, how am I going to do this? But you keep you keep moving forward. Yeah. And so pretty soon it, it comes, it, it infiltrates your dreams. You get information from all kinds of sources. Well, you know what's wonderful about that, I appreciate, is that um, we're so used to looking for such practical feedback on whether we're on the right path or not. Uh-huh. Does the money follow? You know, you put out a novel, you put out a class, you put it out, right. whatever, whatever the it is for you. Um, and um, does the world respond? Does do the... Does the money, you know, the, the book, Do What You Love, The Money Will Follow? Right. Um, it's a wonderful grounded book. Um, but she never does say when the money will follow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Or whether it will follow you. But, you know, there's other ways of knowing that you're on the right path that do not involve those kind of practical feedbacks, like mm-hmm. dreams, synchronicities, precognition. Um, there's this kind of. I don't know what category to put them in. I mystical in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other ways of knowing that you're on the right path that are not just does the money follow? Do you get um, acceptance and recognition from other people? There are almost metaphysical forms of feedback that are really important to look at that uh-huh. tell us whether we're on the right path. Synchronicity, yeah. definitely. Right. Yeah. So let's say that all that all that. Sorry. Can, Go ahead, John. Before, yeah, before we break off, for, if I could interject, because, yeah, so number one, uh, Greg, you'd mentioned, you, you'd you meant, you'd used the word coward earlier, and maybe I missed it, but maybe I missed even before that, but, but the one word is, that I haven't heard is courage, the yeah. hero's journey, having yep. the courage uh-huh. to uh, take the journey. Uh, but then, but then the other thing I was wanting to jump in with is, uh, do you, Greg, do you subscribe to the 10,000 hours, you know, putting in the, yeah, for mastery? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, so, um, 
for anybody who might not know what that refers to, it's Malcolm Gladwell, the author, mm -hmm. uh, talks about mastery in any field of endeavor requires a minimum of 10,000 hours of dedicated practice. Uh, you know, generally speaking, I agree with that. By the way, the math on that is 90 minutes a day for 20 years. That's what that, <laughs> <laughs> sat down with pen and paper. It's yeah. 90 minutes a day for 20 years. And um, that's a lot of work. I think right. most of us would rather just skip ahead to the part where we're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, but it's important to realize that what Malcolm Gladwell was saying was 10,000 hours of, of practicing good habits, not bad habits. Right. Right. Uh, so it, people are considered overnight successes, but when you look into it closer, it's not really an overnight success at all. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, it's just when the public became aware of you or right. something. Um, but yes, uh, and and callings require a commitment and courage. They definitely do. And I think one of the things that can help bring us a sense of courage for these kind of calls is th that there's a connection, I think, between courage and meaning. The, the degree of meaning that a thing has for you, uh, what it would mean to your life to say yes to this this uh, request from the universe or from your own soul. Um, and I think the it's like the philosopher Nietzsche once said, those who have a why to live can bear with pretty much any how. Mm -hmm. And uh, so why is this important? What would it mean to you and to the world and to your service in the world to say yes to this? Um, I think is part of the way toward gaining courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's say everything works uh, in your favor, the synchronicities, the uh, precognitive events, things are flowing, the, you're making the right connections, everything's working well, it seems to be working out. But then along comes uh, economic uh, uh, changes and suddenly uh, the economics of your calling has changed and it's no longer viable. What happens then? Mm. Yeah, the fine and fearsome art of resilience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, going with the proverbial flow. Um, mm -hmm. What needs to happen here? Um, you know, callings being part of life, there are no guarantees. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I, I know somebody, um, I think I mentioned him in the book as well, who opened up a gallery based on a single artist's work and it thrived and then the artist died. Jeez, <laughs> oh, the you nerve. <laughs> so then what is life or what is, what is the calling now? Um, yeah. But I think at that point the call is uh, adapt. And that's exactly. been, a call. Yeah. That's, that's one of those yeah. collective calls that everybody has to deal with and humanity and every every other species has to you know, because there's a pretty simple word for anyone who is unwilling or unable to adapt to change, and the word is extinct. Yeah, right. Yeah, we know many. Uh, we we started out as uh, mystery writers. We knew many mystery writers who suddenly the mystery writing genre just dried up, and these people never wrote another book. But uh -huh. Trish, uh, Trish and I were, you know, always looking for you know, uh, different different options, different ways of pursuing things. We uh, I wrote over 20 novels of different genres. Trish wrote more than twice as many as that. But then all this, all the novel, novel stuff dry, start drying up for us. So we, we've had to adapt um, in yeah. the last few years. So we've done a lot of ghostwriting. And it's, it's still writing and it's fun. Yeah, and, <laughs> right, and we exactly. It. And, the, you know, the pandemic is a perfect example. It, uh, it upset, I mean, almost everybody's apple cart right. one way or another. Um, I... For 10 years before the pandemic, I had um, stoutheartedly refused every offer to do webinars. Mm -hmm. I just, um, I'm, I, I said, I'm a high touch, low tech presenter. I don't do webinars. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I could afford to not do them until mm -hmm. the pandemic uh, yeah. took all, because I said, I'm essentially in the business of public gatherings. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm mostly a teacher. Um, and at this point, and that all went the way of the dodo bird. <laughs> and so it took me 10 years and a plague, but I finally got into online teaching. Yeah. I had to adapt. Um, yeah, you do, or, you, or you're right, you go extinct. 
Exactly. And I, so, you know, suddenly the call of life is adapt to this. Mm -hmm. uh, respond. That's really, again, a calling is just a request for a response. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the world has callings too, not just individuals. Right. Um, you know, and uh, responding to a pandemic is one. I, I think if I think of what is a collective calling, um, I think um, dialogue is one of them at the moment in this world. The the call to dialogue across the aisle, the proverbial aisle. Uh -huh. um, and I think of that as a collective calling. It's not just dialoguing with yourself as part of responding to calling, being willing to turn the receivers on and listen to what's in there. But we now have to do that in a much bigger way. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I think of that as, in a sense, a collective call. Well, also, I think the the COVID, the since it affected the globe, it seems to me that it's it was like a trigger. I hope for some type of a paradigm shift. Mm. You know where things are going to radically change. It may be slow, but right. Yeah. I mean, look how many people left their jobs because of the pandemic. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what I was going to bring up is the, you know, the yeah. great the great resignation or right. uh, yeah, that people were leaving uh leaving their uh established jobs and Yeah, they had numbers. time to think about how much they didn't like them. And didn't yeah. want to go back didn't want to go back to the McService jobs. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so the culture itself is having to respond to in a sense a calling. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit more about synchronicity. At uh, one point in your life, uh, Greg, you were considering changing jobs and uh, it, was a, it was a time of uncertainty and you were literally bombarded by <laughs> synchronicities you wrote. Uh, could yeah. you tell about the experience and what happened? Yeah, sure. Um, I will. I will try to offer the Cliff Notes version <laughs> in the interest of time. But yeah. uh, the thing that the thing that had happened that I wrote about in the book was that I um, I'd been hearing a calling for, I don't know, maybe a half a decade um, while I was working at the newspaper. This is the Cincinnati Inquirer. I had heard a call to quit and become a freelance writer. And I avoided that for five years because it's it was just scary. Uh, leaving employment for self-employment, being a freelance writer for magazines and newspapers. My own mentor said there may be a hundred people in this country who make a living that way. <laughs> uh, and this is my mentor. Um, <laughs> it's my tour mentor. <laughs> but um, So I'm driving home from work uh, at the paper one afternoon. I'm listening to the Eagles song Desperado, where there's a line in there that says, don't you draw the queen of diamonds. She'll beat you if she's able. The queen of hearts is always your best bet. So I, I pull up to my house right at that line. I turn off the ignition right at that line. And I open the car door and I step my left foot out onto the curb. And right there at my left foot was a playing card. And oh I, turned, I turned it over and it was the queen of hearts. Oh, wow. That's a great. That is terrific. And and, um, and so what is the universe trying to communicate with? <laughs> to be with a gesture like that. And then over the next two years, while I was puzzling out how to respond to this calling, I found five more queen cards. Wow. And I, I had never found playing cards in my life. Um, and then I, within two years, I had six queens, and, 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 and which I found all over the country in, in weird places, a conference room in Santa Fe and a, a sand dune in Oregon. And, and um, so what I eventually came to conclude about it was based on the queen. This was the thing that was in common with all the cards. And I was doing some research on what the queen represents. It is the preeminent archetype of powerful feminine energy. Mm -hmm. And so I concluded, you kind of have to look at this stuff like you'd try to interpret a dream. Mm -hmm. And I, I concluded that this decision that I had to make whether to follow this calling was one I ultimately had to make from my heart. Yeah. Not, mm -hmm. not my head. No. And my heart. Yeah. And my heart said, go say yes to this. You, you're not going to your brain is just going to try to talk you out of it because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> hmm. 
So Trish, what does that what does that Queen uh, relate, Queen of Hearts relate to in Tarot? Well, Tarot doesn't use hearts playing cards. I know, but uh, you have the Queen. Well, let him finish his story. Okay, sorry, yeah. <laughs> that's just a that's side it. conversation. <laughs> No, that's yeah. it. But then I started to look into what what are synchronicities because that was such a stunning yeah that is collection of, yeah. of, of and uh, and I just you know in a, I just realized that these synchronicities and you know this better than I do I'm sure is there there when there's a correspondence between external events at the but they match something powerful right. going on on the inside then it turns from a coincidence to a synchronicity because it's meaningful. Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> that, I, what yeah. did the six mean? Do you think? Did it take you a, a full six years? No, it took me two years and six queen cards. Okay, and six queen cards. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, it took me two years while I tried to puzzle out how to respond, whether to respond. But the queens kept piling up in the background, God. and suddenly I realized, wow, um, this is deeply meaningful, and I yeah. really have, have to look at this. It was just such a stunning series yeah. of cities. Do you find them anymore? No. <laughs> no, it's like they serve their I purpose. They serve the purpose, yeah. God. So one of the questions that we're asked most frequently uh, about synchronicity is, where do these synchros come from? <laughs> uh, I suppose it's the uh, same as asking a question of where do callings come from? Yeah. I, where, They're wow. interconnected. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. The synchronicities are us. Uh, the synchronicity barn. Where, where do they come from? Um, you know, I don't. I don't think that. Um, I don't think of synchronicities as, as events that, in a sense, come from anywhere in mm -hmm. particular. They mm -hmm. unfold in front exactly. of us, but right. um, but only. But they only take on the feel of being synchronous by the meaning that we attach to them. Exactly. So in mm -hmm. that regard, they come from us. You know, mm -hmm. it's okay. that correspondence between what's going on inside of me and something that's unfolding in the external world. But and so there's sort of confirmations of something maybe I already know at some level. But the thing that turns them into a synchronicity is the meaning I give it. So that in that sense, I think they come from us. And now, OK, where did the queens come from? Who dropped yeah. those queens for you? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And callings, I think, same way. They they may play out in external ways, such as a job offer or a uh -huh. book that mysteriously finds its way under my night table or a finding right. a bunch of queen cards. But they reflect something going on on the inside. Mm -hmm. and, and that fitting together is part of what can make them feel momentous and, meet, and meaningful. Right. And it's a, it's it's a reality. Yeah, quantum a, entanglement or something. It's a, it's a reality that exists outside of uh, cause and effect. Yeah, the, every, the everyday world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know that really goes against my upbringing because I grew up in a family full of scientists and detectives yeah. <laughs> and journalists, and you don't get a more cynical bunch than that. Right. And so these kind of metaphysical phenomenon, uh, you know, they weren't something I could talk to my dad about. Right. Uh -huh. yeah. um, but and and they require a whole different openness to ways of knowing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're not rational in the sense that a scientist thinks of rationality, uh, but they're real. And they're stunning. I mean, when mm -hmm. people have a synchronicity like you did with these queens, you really have to start to wonder. Absolutely. And that's exactly what you should do. You should start to wonder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, they are wonderful, but they set me to wondering what what is the queen Exactly. Why does that image keep showing up? And then that made me go and study a little bit about what the queen as an archetype is. Mm -hmm. do, you think, do you think more and more people are awakening to this uh, pattern of uh, mystical pattern of existence? Uh, or is it, is, is it uh, just something that's always been with some people? Well, I think both are true. I think mm -hmm. uh, these are very ancient crafts. Right. Um, I mean, aren't they? They're, they go way back. Yeah, and yeah. and I think there's a resurgence of them, partly mm -hmm. because of the work that people like you and me do. Um, right. There's a lot of conversation uh, around right. these subjects. Yeah. I mean, when we first started our blog, which was in 2009, that was, what, 11 years ago, or oh, whatever it was, hardly anybody 
would talk about synchronicity. We, for instance, we go to the dog park. Hey, do you know, do you know what synchronicity is? What's that? You know, now people people get it. And I would imagine if you were to describe what a synchronicity is to somebody at the dog park, most people would say, oh, yeah, I've had some yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you say it's a meaningful coincidence, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah like I was thinking about a friend and suddenly right. he calls. Yeah. Exactly, oh. yeah. And so many, there's been so many books on synchronicity out over the last couple of decades, too. Our agent uh, once told us, don't think about writing another book on synchronicity. <laughs> it's flood. The market is flooded. Stop. Oh, <laughs> no, I don't think. I think everybody has a take on it, though. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And uh, and giving them the permission to look at them as if they have real power and purpose. Right. Yeah. It's important. Yeah, but maybe it's all part of a larger pattern uh, that we're involved in uh, called evolution. Right. Exactly. Like evolution. You know, back to the beginning of our conversation, I think that in some sense that's the purpose, the agenda of callings um, mm -hmm. and synchronicities and dreams mm -hmm. um, is evolution. They, they are asking us to grow and evolve. Yeah. Which we need to do if we want to survive on this planet. <laughs> Absolutely. Individually and definitely collectively. Yeah. 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 Oh, here, here's a synchronicity that's happening right now. <laughs> well, we do this uh, podcast uh when we have, it's we always have our dog a golden retriever underneath the table sleeping and this dog knows exactly when we're coming to the end of the podcast it gets up walks over and starts huffing and puffing and says, you know this is this is over wow <laughs> and he he just did it <laughs> he's in tune he's in tune yeah this has been great talking oh, with you great good people uh some idea of where they can find you, find your website. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, I think the website is probably world headquarters for me. So it's greglevoy.com, G-R-E-G-G-L-E-V-O-Y.com. Okay. Yeah, and there you can find out about your books and your work. Classes, all that good stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you're still doing uh, webinars? <laughs> um, actually, I'm starting to do in-person work again. Oh, cool. All right. All right. Yeah. Despite the newest variant of people right. start, yeah. starting right. to come back uh, to being in person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's hope that uh, works out. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a little scare right now with like with the NFL uh, canceling three games this weekend, and uh, yeah. and they're they're one of the uh, <clears throat> corporations that has been doing the most uh, to uh, you know. Uh, taking the most actions to prevent people from uh, spreading it, but uh, yeah, yeah. that's 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 courageous. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, things will you know be it'll be moderate for you know most people that get yeah. it to be able to move on. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, well I, I, stay I, in I, touch. When you I have a new book out, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, I will. And I and I appreciate um, the conversational nature of our quote interview i just really yeah oh me too back and forth so thank you for that and for the engaging questions thanks for joining the mystical underground visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher google podcast or your favorite podcast app Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.